Welcome into episode number 21 of the 48 Minutes Podcast by Believe, where you stay up to date in 48 on all things NBA. I'm Ross Geiger, joined alongside my co-host, World B, Michael Freer. And tonight, we're excited to have Scott Williams join us as a special guest. He is a three-time NBA champion, 15-year NBA vet, a former assistant coach, both in the NBA and the D-League. And if you're still not impressed with that, he's also a former NBA broadcaster and current broadcaster for Grand Canyon University. Scott, I'm out of breath. Thanks for joining the show. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Ross. Thank you, World B, for having me on. I'm excited to be on 48 Minutes. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to start us off here for our opening tip and just segue into our discussion with you, Scott. You've got a soon-to-be-released book titled Through the Fire, A Memoir of Trauma and Loss, Basketball and Triumph. Tell us a little bit about the process, how you came up with the title for it, and then I'm sure uh, we can get into parts of your book. Well, uh, it, like everybody else during the pandemic, I was kind of early stages of uh, when all the shutdowns were going on. I was jonesing for basketball. And the uh, uh, Michael Jordan documentary uh, really saved everybody's bacon yeah. as far as that 10-part documentary. And I almost saw them drawing a blank on, on the name of it now. Last Help me Dance. Out. Last the Last Dance. Dance, of course. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. – uh, getting a chance to watch that, everyone that I knew kind of sur- you know, surrounded their Sundays, like, uh, what are you going to have for dinner? And uh, are you going to drink a little bottle of wine with your meal and get ready for the last dance to come on? So for two hours, uh, you know, that was kind of my life on on Sundays. And it got me thinking about all the stories that they shared through, you know, Michael's career uh, growing up and baseball and, uh, you know, all the things that he is interest away from the game, um, you know, being cut from his uh, high school basketball team, which is still mind boggling, you know, <laughs> considering, uh, you know, Absolutely. what a legend he, he went on to be uh, in the NBA. Uh, got me thinking I wanted to share some of my stories uh, that I had and, some things that are raw that I have kind of kept deep down and suppressed for a long time about my childhood and the loss of my parents and the situation of my father uh, taking a gun after uh, my mother had left him and killing her and then turning the gun on himself and what how I had a wonderful support system in Coach Smith uh, and the Carolina family to help me through uh, a devastating time for a young, very young 19-year-old for me. I was, yeah, I think 19 is not that young, but I was, I want to say it's immature, but I was uh, still having a lot of fun as a, as a living my childhood uh, dream of playing basketball at the college level. And so I, I had some shares and I wanted to see if that one might be able to help some, some kids that, uh, uh, you may be going through tough situations of verbal and physical abuse, which I endured a lot in my childhood. And my brother and I, uh, Albert uh, Williams Jr., I call him Chip, uh, we, we suffered from a lot of that and having to you know, run out of the house for a, a fear of being beaten and hiding out of neighbors and uh, you know peeking through drapes, waiting for my mother to come home. And um, that it's not kind of how you start your life in the difficult hands that you might be dealt and everybody's story is a little different. I'm not saying that everyone has to have a domestic violence situation or abuse situation, but everyone's got some things that 
they could be being holding them back, you know, bullying and the at the elementary level or sexual abuse, all kinds of different things that happen to children that are just put uh, in, in harm's way in a bad light that can really derail a, uh, a youth. And I thought if I shared some of that along with my story of how I overcame a lot of those, you know, verbal abuse to tell you you're not good enough, you'll never be SHIT, all those types of things you know, coming from a, from a parent, someone close to you that you're supposed to, you know, think would be loving and supporting, um, that if I can do it and I'm not special in any stretch of the imagination that another child out there might be able to do that too. So it gets you a little real, a little raw. I was tough to write. Didn't think it would take me two years, but the emotions that get stirred up in that. And I'm thinking about, you know, abuse and the cycle of abuse and the things that I learned uh, having spoken to domestic violence centers over the years that I wanted to snap that cycle of, uh, of abuse and not pass that on to, to my children and be a better father and more loving and supporting than, than what I experienced was my number one, number one goal. I I wanted to win a championship. I wanted to be a better father than what I had. That was to my children. That was, that was my number one goal. And it's, it covers a lot of basketball, obviously Dean Smith's stories and Michael Jordan's stories in Chicago, um, you know, playing in Philadelphia with Allen Iverson and, uh, you know, all the way to my final year with LeBron James as a young as a young 19 year old had a chance to lace him up uh, with a guy who just I mean, at the time you wouldn't could have told me that he would be the all time score in NBA history when I was looking at this kid at a 19 year old with no jumper. Uh, but he his work ethic was just tremendous. And I'm very, very happy for for LeBron. Well, that's really awesome. I mean, it- to a certain degree, it had to have been pretty like therapeutic. Did you find yourself kind of getting some of that weight off your shoulders as far as just putting it down on paper and, and sharing it to the world and, and not keeping that a secret anymore? Yeah, Ross, it really was um, painful and therapeutic, I guess, probably kind of go sometimes go hand in hand in, in recovery. And yeah, I'm soon to be 55 years old. This happened to me uh, when I was a 20 year old. Uh, so th- that's a long time, uh, 19, 19 year old. So it was a long time ago. Um, but the pain is still real and still fresh. Uh, missing my mother, not being able to, uh, you know, for her to be able to see my dream or our dream, a shared dream that we had of playing in the NBA, you know, Absolutely. Um, it was always a little jealous of some of my teammates, you know, folks that would come to the games and they would go up to dinner afterwards and celebrate the victory uh, and I didn't, I didn't have, I didn't have, I was envious. Maybe it's probably a little bit of a better word, but happy for them, but a little bit envious as well that I, I didn't have that. So yeah, there's a lot of raw emotions. And I think that's why it took me the better part of two years. Cause I would start it and go, this is too painful and put it down, uh, and not come back to it for a while. But, uh, I had, uh, the, I guess, great fortune of having a, a uh, uh, a writer helped me with this by the name of Ben Guest, and he is phenomenal. And he was patient, uh, and it took it took a while. I, he emailed me and texted me and called me to push me to get through this book because he believed in what we were trying to accomplish and telling a story that ultimately one day should should help somebody or maybe a couple that, of people. 
That's awesome. Really glad to hear that. Um, congratulations. It's a huge accomplishment to actually put it all together and uh, excited to check it out when it comes available in a few weeks here. Um, yeah, what I'd like to do is I should have a QR code here by the middle of next week. I was hoping to have it before your show today. Yeah. Uh, life throws curveballs sometimes. Um, so I don't I don't have that available today. Uh, but I should have it next week. Maybe you can extend the link uh, when you archive your photos and, and uh, your uh, viewers and listeners will be able to to go on and, and grab that QR code to be on, on uh, Amazon's uh, books uh, sales. So that's where they'll be able to find it here in about two weeks. Yeah, of course. We'll definitely go ahead and put that up on our social media pages and in, in the link uh, to our podcast so our listeners can be on the lookout for that. That wouldn't be a problem whatsoever. But, you know, kind of shifting to your early life, kind of give us a little uh, insight of, of how you chose North Carolina, the decision going into that, and then kind of just your journey getting to the NBA. Yeah, you know, uh, I was always a great athlete, uh, long and lean, a le- lot leaner than I am today. You, you bumped into me at the Circle K the other day. Yeah. <laughs> and I had the nerve to be walking out of there with a Red Bull and a, and a, and a bag of Twinkies. That was <laughs> trying to say that I would get on a diet. So uh, a little embarrassed that you caught you you me uh, creeping at the Circle K. But, uh, you know, I, I started as a young athlete. I had a, my brother was three years older. Uh, and it's because I was so much taller than most of the kids my age, I played with him and his friends that were a little bit further along um, developed athletically, whether it was basketball, baseball, football, whatever we were doing. Uh, and I was a great baseball player. I could pitch. I could hit. I could run. Um, I could field. I could throw. Uh, and baseball was kind of my first love. And it wasn't until I got a little bit taller, the strike zone got a little bigger, the home runs weren't flying uh, over the outfield anymore. You know, I was, I was catching more strikes on the outside corner or down along the knees. I decided basketball probably was a little bit better way for me to go. And Jeff really fell in love with the sport, the fast pace that they had, you know, the back and forth offense and defense and rotating and over and help side and, and, and uh, you know, switching out on a guy, pick and roll, pick and pop, all the little plays you start to see develop as you become a little bit more immersed in the, in the actions. Um, I could dominate. Uh, the yeah. height the big was a big advantage, right? Like being taller than your teacher when you're in when you're in elementary school and now you're playing against grade school kids, you know, and you get a feel of like, hey, this is cool. You know, you get some recognition. Guys are are uh, giving you high fives. You're able to be able to score. And I had a mean ass jump hook. Oops, can you sit up? Uh, I had a mean jump hook. Uh, that nobody that. could stop. Even my older brother's friends couldn't stop. Right? It was a little left shoulder turn, right hand jump hook that uh, I would use on guys. And if I needed a bucket or if we were playing a game of horse and was getting down to the nitty gritty, I'd bust out the jump hook on them. And they, nobody knew how to shoot a jump hook. But I grew up watching the Lakers. Uh, and Kareem yeah. Abdul-Jabbar was one of the Magic Johnson and uh, Norm Nixon and Jamal Wilkes and James Worthy. These are the guys I idolized. In fact, I wanted to be James Worthy. He was my outside of Dr. J. He was one of the guys as I started to get older, I want to try to pattern my game after. Sorry, James, to let you down there. But uh, <laughs> it, it, uh, those are the kind, but I always wanted to go to UCLA. I grew up in Southern California. I thought UCLA is going to be a great place for me. But at the time, Walt Hazard was the coach when I was you know, entering my senior year in high school. They started recruiting a guy named Kevin Walker heavily. And he was the other 6'10 kid in town. There wasn't a lot of guys 6'10 running around uh, the suburbs of uh, Los Angeles. So 
we get into uh, games against one another, some of the holiday tournaments, man, we could mix it up and go into blows. But I always felt like I got the better of our matchups. So they were recruiting him hard, but not contacting me. I had schools like Villanova and DePaul and Georgia Tech um, and North Carolina all showing up on campus, coming to my practices, games, talking to my teachers and my principals, showing a, a large interest. Um, my, my thought process began to shift away from UCLA. And when Dean Smith uh, came to uh, my house on official recruiting visit and sat down uh, with all of his you know, national championships and Olympic gold medals and having uh, coached my hero, James Worthy, and the new NBA sensation of Michael Jordan had come onto the scene, um, you know, got my attention, got me listening. And he was crafty because of all the coaches that came through, invited me on visits to their campus. Coach Smith was the one coach that invited my mother uh, to come with me. And she was so excited uh, that one of the coaches thought that uh, she was worthy enough to come on the visit. She jumped at the opportunity and came with me. And before we ended up leaving, we arrived on a Friday. And by Sunday afternoon, she was telling Coach Smith, uh, telling me to tell Coach Smith, rather, that I'm coming to, to North Carolina. So she was sold a little before me. But I, I told her, I, uh, for, our, for family safety, I have to take a visit to North Carolina. But I think I knew then, too. I mean, to UCLA. I, I think I knew, I knew then that I was going to be going uh, to Chapel Hill. Hey, uh, Scott, real quick, if it wasn't UNC, where did you see yourself? Was there another school you, you – we're considering if it wasn't UNC or was it you yeah, were locked there, in with you? Yeah, there was there was really two two schools uh, that I really liked. Uh, DePaul University. I really liked Coach Joey Meyer. I thought we our personalities connected real well together. I knew the history of his father having coached there. Uh, one of the players that was uh, that took me around on my official visit that I had watched a lot was Dallas Comages. I don't know if you guys remember that sure. name. But- but he, he, he was a star you know, player uh, at, at the college level. But uh, I got off that plane coming from Southern California in a little silk uh, sweatsuit. <laughs> and, uh, and it was it was still early uh, October, or maybe late September. And the kids were running around uh, playing like flag football or something like shorts and a T-shirt. And I was freezing in Dallas's little Datsun 210. I said, there's no way if these guys don't think it's cold yet that I'm going to be able to surprise, uh, survive the Hawk uh, in uh, December and January. So I, I politely had to tell Coach Meyer, thank you, but no thank you. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be able to make it in Chicago. And the other school was probably Villanova. You know, uh, Raleigh Massimino uh, was fresh off the national championship in 85. Uh, this is just a few months after that. So I kind of got caught up in that hoopla a lot. The, co- the campus, I don't know if you've ever been, Mm-hmm. Uh, it sits in the suburbs of Philadelphia in Villanova. Uh, it's beautiful. It is just an absolute beautiful school, kind of a Ivy League feel kind of to it, you know, uh, Ivy growing on the walls and all those kinds of things and, and brick walkways through the quads. Um, but I didn't, I didn't mesh real well with some of the players uh, that were on the current roster. They were doing some things that, I wasn't all about back then. <laughs> so I just said, no, I, I don't Fair think this would, be, this would be a good fit for me. Yeah. yeah. So now you end up at uh, UNC. Talk to a second about 
obviously it's it's a blue blood school and everybody knows that. I'm sure you a lot of great stories, you had a lot of success, but talk about the expectations of playing at a school like North Carolina. How how were they or did you feel them or what and how uh how do you think your teams reacted during your time there to those expectations? Yeah, well, it was great. I and mean, we were loaded, man. I mean, we came in. It was uh, I was a high school All American, state of uh, California player, Mister Basketball. We had the number one recruit, a guy named J.R. Reed. Uh, he was the National Play of the Year. He was another six ten cat, six nine, uh, and he was he was coming there. A dude named Pete Chilcutt out of Tuscaloosa, mm-hmm. Alabama, another McDonald's All American, six nine, six ten guy. Joe Wolf was our senior. Kenny Smith was in the backcourt. An All-American, uh, number of great players, like Jeff Lebo, Dave Pops, and Renzino Smith. Um, so we were loaded. We were number one preseason. In fact, one of our guys, this guy named Michael Norwood, who was on that team, um, he shared a – we have a group chat going as everybody's got these text messages, right? It's a great way to stay in touch. when We, we, we live and die with every North Carolina field goal. In fact, Notre Dame game almost killed me last night uh, as they squeaked out a victory on the road by four. Um, but he showed a, you know, shared a picture of us all standing around underneath the basket with Coach Smith, who was so special as a mentor and a father figure for all of us, who we lost about about eight years ago uh, last week. So uh, I'm glad Michael shared that picture because it's just all of us together looking up through a basketball hoop. It was on the it wasn't on the cover, but it was inside. We were preseason number one, but. There was a lot of expectations that came with that. You you faced everybody's best game on a nightly, uh, so you had to be up and ready to go. I mean, winning by four uh, at Notre Dame when they won two of their last 14 games would not have been acceptable. I can't even imagine the fire and passion Coach Smith would bring to practice the next day when we had a subpar performance because – as as nice as he was on camera, <laughs> he'd break his foot off in your keister if you didn't perform up to what he thought your expectations were. Uh, and that was really good because it helped shape all of us, not just the guys that didn't go to the NBA. All of us realized to survive a Dean Smith practice, the work ethic that you got to put into, if you can put that into other aspects of your life outside of basketball, there's nothing that we can't accomplish. We have no fear of accomplishing uh, any task that we set our mind to because that man laid such a foundation uh, in us to to achieve to our go- all of our goals. Interesting. So you have a successful college career at North Carolina, and I find it a little ironic DePaul was one of the schools you were considering in Chicago. Talk a little bit about the draft process. Were you expected to be drafted? And then how did you land in Chicago? It's just kind of funny. It's like, North Carolina, like you remember Jordan, and then you end up in the city of Chicago where DePaul is, and you're playing with Jordan, another uh, Tar Heel alum. Talk, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's it's, it's actually, Ross, uh, kind of a, <laughs> I think, bittersweet story for me. Um, draft night was a bit of an embarrassment because Al McGuire had said I was going to be kind of a middle to late lottery pick, and I'd done really well uh, my senior year. Uh, even though we had a bad year, I was, I was rebounding the ball well, I was scoring the ball well, shooting a high percentage. Free throw numbers were still down in the 60s, but uh, improving. Uh, and I seemed to make them when I needed to. But uh, when I had to go to the 
Com, Com mine in Chicago and all the doctors start pulling and prodding on you. I had a bad shoulder. Uh, my right shoulder would sublate, sublux and dislocate in practices and games. And it would cause me to come out for a short period of time, but it never kept me out of anything. I, was, I learned how to deal with the pain and, and play through it. Um, so I, I was always proud that I never missed a practice or a game because of my shoulder injury. But, you know, in the pros over 82 games, these general managers are putting their, uh, their own careers on the line and they didn't want to draft a damaged player. So after the first round goes by, I got to hear my name called, and I was sitting there with my roommate, Jeff Denny, and uh, I think my, my girlfriend at the time, Fonzetta Badger, uh, and my brother. I, I was embarrassed. I went back to the back bedroom, closed the door, and watched the second round go by, and I wasn't drafted, man. That was painful. I, had, I cried. As I had worked so hard through so much, I had an appendectomy my senior year that I came only missed a game from. I came back and, and played, you know, kind of on a, on half speed for a little while. But uh, I thought I still put up good numbers, and uh, I got lucky because Michael Jordan knew this dude named Fred Whitfield, who they work together down in, in Charlotte now. That was putting on a basketball game for campers, uh, and there was a way to kind of get uh, something back to the community. As Fred, very civic minded. And I got invited to go play in that. And Jordan brings a lot of guys from the league. Charles Oakley, Bim, uh, Bimbo Coles, um, Del Curry, Steph's, Steph's uh, father. Uh, so I said, I jumped at the chance. And I got a chance to go up against Kenny Gaddis and some of these guys. And honestly, I dominated the game, but I held my own. And I was on Jordan's team. And it was one of those games where it's hard to believe, but Jordan would tell you, but we played hard. Not like that all-star game you saw uh, last <laughs> Sunday night. We, Jordan come to the locker room and tell these guys, you play, play hard or, or there's the door. You can leave. And like, we're not getting paid for this. <laughs> Just showing up to get a run and give back as well. So we, you know, look around, okay, all right. So MJ wants to go hard. We go hard, right? So late in the game, I grabbed an offensive board. We were down by one and, and I found Jordan in the right corner. And, and, and instead of going back up with, it, I threw it out to him and he knocked down the shot. And uh, so on his way out of the gym, riding with Fred Whitfield in this little tiny red convertible, which was too small, uh, Corvette convertible was too small <laughs> for him, he calls Jerry Krause, the general manager at the time of Chicago Bulls. And so Krause gave me a call and said, uh, uh, we want to bring you into uh, Summer League uh, and see if you can uh, see how you do. Maybe we give you an invitation to veterans camp later that year. But I almost messed it up. Because I had an opportunity to go down to Charlotte, uh, and they gave me a physical down there. They failed me on my physical because of my shoulder. And I said, duh, I mean, that's why I wasn't drafted. Uh, so I almost messed up. I almost ended up in Charlotte instead of Chicago. Because once I got to Chicago, uh, we, I ended up winning three straight championships, which was pretty damn sweet. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? I know a ton of our listeners would be very intrigued just to hear your your perspective on playing with some of the all-time greats, being on one of the greatest teams of all time, if not the best team of all time. Just what is that like, especially as a younger player? Obviously, you go on to play 15 years in the league, which is super impressive based off where you kind of started getting undrafted because of an injury and kind of proved the, the doubters wrong there. But just as far as that Bulls era is considered, I mean, what was that? what is that like as a young NBA pro? So cool, so rewarding, but so hard. Uh, MJ, uh, when I got there, had not won a championship yet. The Pistons had knocked him off 
uh, three times, the last, the previous three years. And then the last, the year that I was uh, finishing up college, it was in game seven of the Eastern Conference Finals. And he was pissed. And he came into tra- uh, the training camp uh, like a smoldering dragon. I, everything we did was hard. I mean, and we practiced back then. It was the first seven days or two a days. No time on practice. It, if we'd go two and a half, three and a half, sometimes longer with film sessions, before and after weight training, and banging. Guys were beating the snot out of one another. And I was trying out for the last spot on the team with this dude from, from Georgetown named Ben Guillory. And we, we darn near took each other's heads off knowing that this was going to be – there was only one roster spot open. This is, and only, only carrying 12 guys back then. You know, not the 17 or 18 that they got now with the two week, two, two, uh, two way players. I think it's what yeah. they call them down yep. in, the, in the, with the G League and all. Yep. We didn't have all that, right? It was, it was 12 dudes. Maybe, maybe some of the more uh, team, rich teams would, would have a 13th guy, but that was it. Uh, so I, you know, we, we banged at each other real hard. I mean, I got that last, that last spot. And uh, the first thing that they talked about was, earning the home court advantage in the playoffs to the Eastern Conference because they didn't believe they could beat Detroit uh, Pistons at Detroit. And uh, we worked our butts off in training camp. And wouldn't you believe we start the season, we we lose our first three games. (laughs) So when you thought that was hard, uh, it got even harder because <laughs> Jordan was even more pissed off. Uh, and it wasn't until we faced the Pistons the first – and we faced the Pistons the first time. Uh, they smacks caked us. I, they beat us by double digits and wasn't even close. And so, uh, you know, things were tough in Chicago. It wasn't a whole lot of joy. And guys worked hard. If you weren't ready to compete with MJ on a nightly basis um, in practice – uh, if you weren't ready to run through a wall f- with that guy because he was out in front leading just like every, like he did in every drill, uh, every shooting competition, every two-on-two, uh, any rebounding drills that we did, uh, you'd have a problem with MJ, and he'd let you know about it. And a lot of guys thought that as him being a bully, but dude wanted to win. That's how I saw it. And I'm like, hey, I'm an undrafted player trying to earn minutes. I, my first five games, I sat on the bench. I didn't get a chance to get out of my warmth. That didn't never happen to me at any level. So I'm out there trying to work my tail off uh, just as much as he was. And I think I, I think I did. I worked harder than everybody except MJ. Uh, and by the end of the season, you know, I was playing against the Detroit Pistons in the Eastern Conference Finals. I was playing against the Los Angeles Lakers, my hometown team that I grew up, you know, idolizing Magic George, uh, Magic Johnson and James Worthy and Byron Scott and A.C. Green. You know, these are guys that I watched play as a little kid. You know, I was in my driveway counting down, you know, to the buzzer that Williams got the ball on the right side, three, two, shoots it up. The Lakers win the championship, right? But I'm like, hey, if I got to win a championship through going through L.A., so be it. You know, blocking Magic Johnson's shot and taking a charge on Buck as he came through the through the lane. Those are memories I'll have for the rest of my, li- my lifetime. So, uh, it was it was a special time, but uh, that first championship was probably the specialist. Hey, uh, Scott, going to do that first championship, you obviously had to get by the Pistons in the Eastern Conference Finals, and it was a it turned out to be a sweep. And the the famous moment at the end when the Pistons decided to walk off Isaiah, Bill, oh. and all, all the rest of the guys. Well, some people don't know the the cameras focus on Michael as as they're walking by. But you're right next to Michael in that shot, that famous shot as the guys are going by. What's going on 
at that moment. I you, you can see the shrug on Michael's face as he can't believe it's going on. But what is going on with the on the bench at that point? What do you see as it's going on, and what was the reaction by the by the rest of the guys? Uh, utter disbelief that a two-time back-to-back NBA champion Detroit Pistons team that had knocked off the Bulls the previous three years couldn't muster the class, the dignity to to wait for the final horn to sound. Uh, and I'm not saying they have a long conversation, but at least slap five, shake hands, and, and admit that they had gotten bested. But the way we had hit our stride towards the end of the season. We won 61 games that year, 61-21. And it hadn't been a team that had won 61 or 60-plus games in a while. So uh, we were we were beating teams by by the, by the halftime. Some of these games were, were over and decided, especially against the lesser teams, the expansion teams, um, you know, from, from uh, was it 80, 88 and, and 90. So we were running rough shot through the league. And, and when now we did sweep the piss, and we beat them twice by – double digits, and I think we had them down by 20 in game four, and their egos could not handle it. You no, know, before that wasn't something that was impromptu, like impromptu. Right. That was that was talked about. You can see Isaiah on the bench talking to some of his teammates about this is what we're going to do, and even mentioning something to Chuck Daly, who did not seem to be on board with what it was that they were discussing. And I, and I always liked Chuck. I, he's, he was a great coach. May he, he rest uh, peacefully. But he was a great coach and a professional. And I, I could see he wasn't down with whatever it was that they were saying, but they they walked off the court. And MJ and I are standing right there, shoulder to shoulder. Right. Uh, walk, I'm watching each of these cats go by. And Isaiah even kind of ducked down and, and, yeah. and stuck around a couple of his teammates. And so we were disbelief at the time, but by the time we got back to the locker room, I remember MJ going, uh, uh, I can't stand a MFer. You can't take a, a whooping like a man. And I think he used a couple other expletives in there <laughs> as well. But we were so excited to be going to the yeah. NBA finals that we didn't let that bother uh, our celebration one bit. We got, uh, you know, showered and back on the plane with our, uh, championship hats and T-shirts, and we were going to the NBA Finals and the chance to beat the Lakers. Giddies all get up because we realized how hard we had worked to earn that uh, home court advantage and how the main goal was to beat the damn Pistons. Uh, and not only did we beat them, we beat them so bad they lost their dignity uh, in the loss. I I heard a uh, interview with, by John Sally one time uh, talking about that moment. And it was funny because he mentioned how he asked Chuck Daly if he could go back in the game so he couldn't walk off the court. He knew what was going to happen, and he didn't want to be a part of it. So he asked Chuck to put him back in the game. He didn't know it was a blowout, so he wouldn't, he couldn't be a part of it. He'd have to stay on the court. So yeah. I always, I found that. And there was, there was some players. I'm not going to say it was the entire team. I remember Joe Dumars being being out there, and I think Sally uh, was one of the guys uh, meal, kind of mealing around. We didn't have – courtside celebrations back then like they do now. I mean, they, they pop champagne, I think, after every playoff win. We didn't do it like that. You know, you only chance to taste that champagne and feel that sting in your eyes uh, and shower your teammates with it and, and let it sink into your jersey and into your uh, socks and your sneakers after you won the championship. It was the only right that you got. You didn't get it for winning the Eastern Conference Finals. You know, you, you, you got that right when you won it all. And I think there's something special about that that is a little lost on some of these players today. Now, as painful it may be for me, 
the Knicks, I'm a big Knicks guy. The Knicks come about the the year after with Pat Riley, his first year. You guys are going for your title defense. Uh, they take you to seven games the first year under Riley when you guys prevailed uh, in seven in Chicago. And the next year, they had the home court advantage. They had the 60-win season. Everything seemed to be going in their favor. And yet you guys pulled one out again in six games, winning in Chicago again. Talk about that rivalry. And then on top of that, in 94, when the Knicks finally uh, prevailed in the semifinals in seven games again, when Jordan uh, took his baseball break, it was still an intense rivalry, intense series. Talk about, well, first thing, talk about that rivalry between you two. And do you consider it a rivalry if you guys won at all the big moments? Do you, it, I mean, <laughs> well, honestly, the rivalry you know, battle, whatever you want to call it, yeah. those guys were loaded. I mean, and Pat Riley, phenomenal coach, obviously Hall of Famer, you know. Uh, he had those cats riled up. I mean, think about a lot of them. Ewing and Oakley, and Smith, and Anthony Mason, Xavier McDaniel, Herb Williams, I mean, you know, Starks and uh, Doc Rivers, and uh, all these cats that they had, he had them all spun and wound so tight, uh, they were trying to take our heads off of our of our star players, Michael and Scotty, when they would come down the lane. I remember, you know, X getting in Scotty's face, then Michael coming over and getting in X's face, and I come over like, hey, guys, let's not have a fight out here. <laughs> I, I really, I didn't really want a piece of X, man. X looked like he might literally might bite you the way Mike Tyson used to do in a fight. <laughs> Guy looked like he'd be dirty, but uh, they were intense battles. The games were great. The worst thing that happened to the Knicks when they they had a great team. They had won twenty seven straight games at home, uh, and they had cleaned our clocks the first two games of the series in New York. And word got out uh, by the press that MJ had left New York and gone down to Atlantic City to go gambling. And it was the reason why we lost uh, game number two. Uh, he had a kind of a, you know, a subpar performance for him, which was still still pretty darn good. Uh, and that lit a fire in MJ. And that was the worst thing that happened. We ended up beating four straight after that. You remember Charles Smith under, yep. under the basket in front of our bench. Uh, you know, with us up one trying to score <laughs> against, against the likes of Scotty Pippen and his long arms and long fingers and Michael Jordan stripping the damn ball away from him and Horace Grant coming over and blindsiding them. Poor dude I'll, didn't have a chance. I'll and, tell you what, I, I remember as a sports that you go, you wish never it would happen to anybody, as, certainly not a good a guy's good uh, dude as Charles Smith. Uh, but, you know, in one of the things the fan bases never forget, right? Great player, college in the, in the NBA, and he's probably known for getting his block, his shot yeah. blocked four times. That would have put the Knicks probably, uh, you know, they would they go up 3-2 uh, uh, in that series. It's probably not looking real good for us as winning that 3 people. But when we win that game, you can feel the, and the, the air go out of that arena and that team. And we ended up smashing them in, in Chicago uh, two nights later by close to 20 points. I'll tell you, the, the game, the Charles Smith game is the one that all Knicks fans remember and agonize over from that 93 conference finals. And honestly, for me, it, as a fan, it was it was game three of that series in Chicago when Michael Jordan didn't have a Michael Jordan-type game and the Bulls still blew out the Knicks by about – you guys still blew them out by about 20 points – on a night when Jordan didn't have his 
you know, I think the next night he had 50 plus in game four and really took control. But with that game three, that really could have been uh, something else if Dix had, you know, been able to pull out on a night, took advantage of a night when Jordan wasn't at his uh, superstar, all time great self. Um, The one thing I wanted to ask you too at 94, I know it may be a sore spot, but I want to ask you about the Scottie Pippen game in game three of that series when you guys are down two zip in that series, you come back and it's 1.8 seconds left. The Knicks had just tied it on, on a Ewing jumper. It came all the way back from way down. Take us to that huddle and, and how everything, from your perspective, how everything went down there. Yeah, that's a tough one. And I've always felt for Scotty on that. And I was afraid that he would be one of those things that he might uh, always be remembered for in his career, a special player as he was. I remember I watched his game just take off after the 92 Olympics when he got a chance to play with those greats like Larry Bird and Ewing, uh, uh, Drexler, uh, Stockton, uh, Malone. Uh, I mean, those, the, obviously, uh, MJ, um, Charles Barkley. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? So but his game was good, and it went to a different level after that. And by 94, when Joe retired, Scotty carried us. We had won – I think we lost – one more game than we had the year before, um, uh, or maybe the same record. Uh, he was in top three for the MVP voting. Yep. Uh, he had had a phenomenal year. Rebounds, points, assists, running the point, running the point four. I mean, he did it all for our yep. ball club. Uh, and I think that Pitt got outside of what his true personality was. He wasn't like that. He, he, he was selfishness. He, he was one of my favorite teammates. We hung out on the road uh, in bars and restaurants and cl- nightclubs uh, all the time, quick to pick up uh, a check. Now, he wouldn't tip the hostess, but uh, <laughs> he, 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 no tipping Pippin. I remember, you know, I, I, I work on a minimum contract every from year to year, so he was quick to pick up a check. He just wouldn't tip. <laughs> uh, but they call him no tip and pippin. I hope he doesn't get a chance to see this. He's gonna kill me. My phone gonna be ringing tomorrow. <laughs> uh, I said it. I said it. Not you. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, he was a great dude. So for him to do that at that time, it really threw us for a loop. I remember Bill Cartwright crying in the locker room afterwards. Bill was our big, strong center. We never showed any emotions, you know, unless he was inflicting pain on somebody else, you know, at the center spot, battling Ewing and, and uh, Kim Elijah and some of the other top centers uh, in the league. I learned all my tricks in the tape, afraid from teach, you know, that was what we called them because he would teach us you know, how to use our hips and our forearms and our chest and our elbows and <laughs> your fingers. <laughs> if he had to gouge a guy, I think Cartwright would do it. Um, but so see him break down and John Paxson give an emotional speech. And we were in the locker room for a long time before they opened it up to the press. And, and Scotty was, you know, sad. But we had run that same play that we ran earlier in the year. I think it was against Milwaukee or somebody. Uh, and Co-Coach hit the game winning shot. It was so against the Pacers. Yeah, I got Scotty Pippen, the best, our best passer, passing the ball to one of our guys who's long and athletic and can shoot it from the outside and already made a, a shot in a big moment like that. So, you know, he goes to the bench and they, I think they put in, uh, oh gosh, who we have a, a, as his Pete back. Myers. Yeah, Pete Myers. Thank Pete you. Myers Great ball. The, Sorry, the pass, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, so Pete Myers delivers the strike and Kukoc hits the shot. I remember picking Kukoc up and I wasn't his biggest fan to start the season because they had heard about Christ. Uh, Krauss talking about how, 
how good he was for all those years. So we, but Tony was a great guy and obviously a Hall of Fame player as it turned out to be. Uh, you know, picking hitting that shot, we were so excited. But then we remembered now we got to go in a locker room and deal with this aftermath of Pip sitting out that game and letting us all down. Uh, and I think, and he came back and he had a great series in Game Four, and then he fouls Hubert Davis on this mystery call. Uh, it was legit. A, come on, Scott. It was legit. Oh, it was legit. Come on. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, that would cost us the game. But uh, it, we, we had a we had a great year. I wouldn't change anything about that season. We had a bunch of competitors. I think everybody had written us off um, after Jordan uh, went and played baseball. Uh, but we had a, a, a real tight knit squad, and I thought we we overachieved. We did not underachieve on that squad whatsoever. Awesome, Scott. Well, we're going to take a quick break here as we have reached our halftime buzzer, and we'll be back with you guys shortly. And we're back here for our shortened second half here. Uh, Scott, really appreciate all the stories and transparency uh, on tonight's show. We want to kind of shift things kind of more so to the current NBA. And since you are a guy that did spend 15 years in the league as a player, also spent time as as a coach. Um, first question for you, a big one right now is the current issue in the NBA regarding load management. Now, coming from your era and the stories that you just shared, of course, that was non-existent back in the day. But what do you? What are your thoughts on, on, on load management? And do you have any type of opinion or even a solution for what the league can do? And, and, and I'm curious to hear from a player because, of course, you know, the Players Association, things of that nature. Um, do you see them coming to any type of agreement on, on a resolution? Yeah, I don't know how they're going to handle it from, the, from uh, you know, play, Players Association and NBA uh, front offices. Uh, above my pay grade, try to stay in my lane. But I know as a, as a player, um, I wanted to play. I wanted to entertain. Uh, I wanted to get out there and work that hard in practice in grade school. You only got so many games, uh, so many years you can play and games that you can play in. Um, I don't think to me, well, everyone says, well, I, I take games off so I can play longer in the league. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's how it's supposed to be done. I, I, I think yeah, you, you're, just, you're stacking plenty of chips. Money's phenomenal that these guys are making. So they're stacking, stacking big piles. Um, what I got away from my early playing days and career, which really propelled me to be a 15-year uh, pro, it wasn't talent alone. It was the, the veteran leadership that I had that taught me how always to be pro. Always be pro. That's why I hear those Paxson, Cartwright, Hodges, and Jordan always talking about whether you're on the court, uh, doing a, you know, playing a game, whether you're in practice, a film session, whether you're doing stuff in the community, uh, a hospital visit, a court dedication. Uh, be a pro. Show up on time. Uh, you you show up with enthusiasm, uh, and you do and you do the best job that you possibly can. You lock in for that commitment that you're going to be there, whether it's 60 minutes or a, a four hour four hour game time. Uh, you want everybody in that arena to be that's that even when you're not playing, you're sitting on the bench that you're locked in, that you're professional. And, and that to me translates to guys playing that they would have respect Great. the game, the guys that came before them enough, the family of four that's paying $275. Well, shoot, that's what it was back in my days, probably double that now to come to an NBA game, you know, get the popcorn, uh, so sodas and a hot dog plus parking and tickets. Heck, it's probably 500 bucks easy. 
uh, and for a star player to then say, well, you know, this is the fourth night, five games. I'm going to sit this one out. Uh, I, I, I think it's, it's not fair. It's not fair to the people that are putting the butts in the seats. It's, it's being, it's being selfish, um, that you're trying to maybe extend your career or, um, it's, it's, I think it, it, it discounts the necess the true, the true chase for championship, the grueling grind of a 82 game season, uh, back in the day was part of all of that. Um, and they have more masseuses and modalities, uh, and ways to keep these guys fresh in recovery. Um, yet there's still just as many injuries than, than, uh, or more than when we had back when we played. And I don't know if it's because, you know, we used to shoot guys up with cortisone shots in the knees. I, uh, I can attest to that. Uh, <laughs> and throw us back out there to keep us playing. The guys would, would never, well, doctors would never do these days and, and players certainly would never take the needle. Uh, but that's what we did to stay on that court, right? You make it 150 grand and you're on a non guaranteed contract and your this your finger comes dislocated. You ain't taking three to four weeks off. <laughs> you're gonna buddy tape that sucker up and get out there and start battling against those dudes like Kevin Willis underneath the basket, right? You just gonna you just gotta do it. Does the eras aside, because obviously everybody takes an you know, this year over previous years, everybody can debate that, but to what you just talked about with load management, does that change your perception of certain players? I'm not going to get specific or anything like that, but certain players who are considered stars or whatever, does that change your perception of them in the based on you know the load management, the way it's – not the era of which they're playing because that, that's really not fair because that's just how it is. But the, the idea of sitting and not playing – Injury management, you know, is on the box score now. Does that change your perception of some of these guys who want or have the label as superstars compared to other stars? I, I don't know if it changes my perception of them. Um, I, I don't. I think our era was better. I'm one of these old crusty right. dudes that thinks, "Oh, I went back when I played." You know, it, it was. It, it played and that's how it is, right? I, I get that. Uh, you know, I don't like seeing a game 137 and 128. You know, I, I, I just, you know, I, I don't, I don't really dig that. It was first of all, I couldn't score. It's <laughs> 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 a guy. Well, most of the teams, Jordan and Pippen, they were giving me those shots. I'd be wide open in the block. They'd be like, "Yeah, swing it." <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know, maybe I got a little bit of, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm salty about about that, but. Uh, yeah, I, I prefer a game that's 106 to 101 or 102 um, more than a game that's, you know, that's the score going into the fourth quarter. I just can't get with that. So I don't like the era more than I'll say the, the, the guys with the load management bother me. Do I want to okay. turn in? I don't turn in and to watch as many basketball games. I still peep at a Thursday TNT uh, uh, game because uh, I like you know uh, listening to Charles and Kenny and and Shaq uh, and of course Ernie uh, you kind of direct those guys or sometimes not, there's no directions they, they yeah. crazy that's, but, that's about uh, you can. I'll come out I'll, I'll watch that uh, in you know the pregame the halftime show but um, you know the the game itself it's it's a different brand of basketball and uh, but until it comes to the playoffs 
Uh, I don't really tune in too much, but I, I am excited because, uh, Ross, you know, as, as uh, we are both here in Phoenix, we got Kevin Durant. And he, yeah. even though I played with LeBron, he's, he's my favorite uh, current player in the NBA. So I'm real excited to be able to go down and watch him for a couple regular season games. I'll be hitting up Mark West for some tickets. He's our uh, alumni, uh, NBA alumni with the uh, sons to go through and get some tickets. Well, I'm glad you mentioned KD because we're going to get into some rapid fire questions here for our final quarter with you. Um, you know, what's your thoughts on, on the big trade for Phoenix? Of course, I would say this is probably the most historic trade of all time. I think this, me speaking here, thing, I think it's bigger than been the Barkley trade to get a guy like Kevin Durant uh, to the Phoenix Suns with what they already have in place. Um, what's your thoughts on this team? And do you think they have a legitimate chance this year to kind of just turn things around from, I think they're currently like six in the West and come up atop the West and, and win it all. Yeah, I got him at fifth of the West, nine and a half back. I don't know if they have enough time to d- develop the chemistry to run uh, to run down. Uh, who the heck is it now? Uh, the Nuggets. Sorry, the Nuggets are yep. uh, have a nine and a half game. Yeah, the Suns currently in fifth. Uh, so I don't think they're going to run it down, but I don't think they have to. I think what they have to do, and I don't know how many games. And generally, I would say twenty five to 40 games it takes to get mm-hmm. that kind of chemistry with a superstar player. You bring him into a new team. But because you've got a, a veteran like CP3, Chris Paul, uh, an unselfish star that's already there, and, and Devin Booker, a younger big. I know Aiton's in, I guess, fourth or fifth year, but still a younger big uh, that will listen to a guy like Durant who's got that MVP uh, award and championship ring. Uh, I think I can do it in, in a shorter period of time. So I'd like to say, you know, 13 to 18 games, something like that, 12 to 15 maybe even, uh, that they can start to develop that chemistry. So can they, as long as they can probably try to get in that top four, maybe top three, they are currently uh, a game and a half behind the Kings. So if they can run down that, get in that top three spot, uh, I think that gives them a good positioning for the playoffs. Um it's really, listen, it's finals are bust for them. They've rolled all their chips with the guys that they've given up uh, and the draft choices that they've given up. Uh, but I think they can do it. I honestly believe it's healthy. KD comes back healthy from the knee injury that he has. I'm excited about what this team's going to bring to the Valley. Absolutely. I mean, we can already feel the excitement here. And uh, I'm happy for Suns fans just having a chance to get this opportunity with a, a superstar like KD, because it's not every day that they're you're able to go out and just acquire a guy like that at the deadline. So uh, super exciting time here. Now, to flip to the Eastern Conference here, of course, a lot of people have heard my stories about Giannis. We were working together in Milwaukee uh, together during Giannis's rookie year. Talk a little bit about him, what you saw uh, from him as a coach, working with him on the floor as a big and and maybe just share kind of like one memory of like wow like he's really special like when when did you know that he he might have what it takes to to get to an all star level I don't think anyone here would say after his rookie year this guy would be arguably the best player in the league but just talk about that experience being you know being a coach for Giannis. Well, I, I probably, you know, uh, maybe a better coach than I'd ever be a general manager. And I knew they picked him, you know, in the, in the first round as a you know, young skinny kid from, from from Greece. And, you know, I think he was barely averaging double figures over there. So the, someone saw the potential way before I did. I, I knew he uh, – my, my, my biggest takeaway from him, though, early on outside of, yeah, I don't know about this guy, was 
he puts in the work. And this kid likes to compete. I remember some of the shooting games that they would have with O.J. Mayo and Chris Middleton. Uh, those guys would just go down there, and we would just throw them passes after passes after passes. And Giannis didn't win it many, if any, of those games. He'd want to play another and another and another until he could get a win. And oftentimes he wouldn't. And we would literally just have to take the basketballs off the court, lock them in the storage facility, so he would go have to go home at that point. That was his thirst to want to get better. First in the gym, always the last to leave. Uh, Lifting weight. I told him, you know, I saw him at a holiday game uh, in New York over Christmas time. And I said, you would have had those muscles uh, back when you were 18. We, we wouldn't have got fired as a coaching staff. <laughs> we were god awful. We only won 15 games. Remember that, Robbie? I mean, oh, how can I forget? <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I, I'm so proud of his development. Um, I did not see two-time MVP coming, uh, <laughs> but I, I knew the kid was going to be a, a, long, a, a good, solid player in this league for a, a long time. An all-star, yes. An all-pro, I didn't see that. I didn't see MVP. I think we'd be lying if anyone said they saw that from from, from Jump Street. So uh, I'm right there with you, Scott. Now, kind of going back to you and your career, um, I find it impressive. You're a career 72% shooter from the foul line as an NBA big. That's not bad. You know, we'll, we'll take that any day of the week. Uh, sign me up. So my question for you is, you know, what was the key to your success? And then just being a former player and assistant coach, why do you think a lot of these NBA bigs struggle, struggle from the foul line? What goes wrong? Is it more mental or is it something with, with just your the big hands? Like what, what is it? Well, you know, First of all, I, I, I sucked in college. I sucked in the early part of my career. I had a coach uh, in Milwaukee that helped, assistant coach that helped me with my stroke, and he said, "You got too much going on." First of all, I think the longer part of guys, or the guys are six ten, six eleven, seven, you know, over seven footers, is we have more more things that can go wrong before the ball releases from our arms, right? So the shorter player, shorter wingspan, uh, less to keep it in alignment with the rim for us. He told me, short your stroke up some. Don't try bringing the balls. I always bring the ball kind of below my waistband up into my shooting motion. Well, that just extra foot of movement uh, it was enough to, you know, cause something to, to go wrong. My shoulder wasn't right and my elbow wasn't right and my you know, wrist angle wasn't right and my forearm. Well, there's so many things that just micro movements you have to try to correct if you feel it going wrong, now all of a sudden you're not thinking about your follow through and the back of the rim. So all these little factors come and said, he just shortened my stroke up. So my one of my proudest moments was I went from, you know, kind of that high 60s and low 70s. I was shooting 85, uh, 87 uh, for a stretch in the playoffs in, in Milwaukee at one point in time in 2001. So I was feeling real good about what I was what I was doing later in my career. And it took took me a while to understand, yeah, that's what you got to do make things as simple as possible at the free throw line by shortening the movements that you have to make. Gotcha. And, and where I'm going with this now, of course, is uh, Ben Simmons. Obviously he's around your size. Um, kind of just talk about that current situation. Is this something you think he can, he can work through? And is there any advice or you would offer him as a coach? If you were coaching him? Well, you know, for, for me, it was a physical thing, right? It was mechanics. I don't think yeah. that's the deal with him. I think yeah. now it's mental. Uh, and, and that might be tougher 
and above my pay grade to be able to offer any <laughs> advice on that. So I know there's a lot of sports psychologists that would probably love to work with them because I, I think they would be in agreement uh, with me. The guy's game is too nice. Uh, he's, he's too athletic uh, and probably smart enough to be able to figure things out. Um, but once it becomes a mental issue and a mental hangout, uh, and you've letting fans uh, and social media and everybody else get inside your noggin, you're toast. And I think that's unfortunately what has happened to Ben. But if, if you were his teammate, though, and you're getting doubled on the block because he's just left <laughs> wide open, I mean, you would want him to shoot the ball, right? Like just a few times, get a, take a couple so that you're a little bit of a threat out there, right? I mean, just thinking yeah. as like a guy that's posted up on the block, Simmons has the ball because he is a fantastic creative creator for others it's like you know you got to show it a little bit just flash it i agree ross you know i my senior in north carolina was pretty good down on the blocks but we had a guy named king rice i love you king but that dude couldn't hit the backboard and a lot a lot of times they would just sag off of him and it's like having a man and a half down around you when you're trying to post up to try to get receive the ball he was a great pass a great ball handler but uh, just a poor shooter and one time, just told us, it's like, dude, you, you just gotta, you just gotta snap off a couple, just so they'll honor you. Even if you go one for four early in the ball game, it's gonna open things up for me a little down low. And you know, I, I started doing that towards the this latter part of this the uh, the season. I start, you know, I've coming back from, like I said, an appendectomy surgery. Anyway, but started getting a little bit more points, and I think the team started playing a little bit better as a re, as a result down the stretch. We went from one of Dean's worst teams to uh, making it uh, making it out of the Sweet Sixteen. So we were really or make it to the Sweet 16. So we were really proud of, uh, of that. But, um, yeah, for, for Ben, I, I think the, the same thing. He, he's got, you know, he's got to just have that mental approach that, you know, I'm putting in the time and practice, and, and i got to have confidence to go ahead and do it in the, and, uh, do it in the games. Yeah. Now, going back to L.A. here, uh, you were former teammates with Darvin Ham. Kind of just want to get your thoughts on how you think he's navigated – uh, this season being a first-year head coach, and uh, you think the Lakers have a chance to make the playoffs, or what? What's your take on 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 LA's chances here down the stretch? Well, I wrote down the top eight teams. I didn't even go down there far enough to see where the Lakers are at. I don't know what position they're in, Ross. You'd have to help me with that one. Yeah, I love LeBron James. I, and I say I had him as a 19-year-old. The dude worked hard. I remember taking a charge uh, early in training camp from him and, and, and uh, we both go down on the ground and I'm thinking, Oh God, I hope I didn't, I hurt this young dude. And then as I start to try to get up those little dash and those flashlights start hitting your eyeballs, you're like, damn, I hope this young kid didn't hurt me. <laughs> and I was 37. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's 19. I'm older than his mom. I, you know, this, yeah. <laughs> what am I worried about him for? Uh, and I love, I love LeBron. Uh, you know, he's one of these load, man- he's one of these load management guys too, unfortunately now. And, you know, he got he got a lot of miles on that body. But when you're yep. fighting for a playoff spot, I think you have to change your thinking some. Maybe you don't play as many minutes. Maybe that's the thing that they can start doing, saying, hey, I'm going to play as many minutes rather than sitting out the entire basketball game when you fight for your playoff lives. And I don't know how many more seasons he's got left in those legs. It, you, you would think he'd, he'd want to win a, a, another title before he is done. And I know they got the bubble title uh, and I, and I think it's, you know, I think he's at four championships now yep. uh, and a lot of, you know, in the, the scoring title that he recently got, congratulations LeBron on that. Uh, but if you want to, you want to separate yourself from LeBron, uh, from Michael, 
and consider yourself the greatest of all time. And I know there's a debate right now, and arguably it goes one side of the mother, the other. I think it's probably 60-40 will probably say Michael, and some of the younger generation will say uh, LeBron. But, uh, you know, if you ever want to swing that the other way, that teeter-totter the other way, uh, he's going to have to start putting some more rings on his fingers and getting into some more deep playoff runs. Do you think there's any value in the fact that uh, he's defeating Father Time? I mean, obviously, Father Time's undefeated, but what he's been able to do this year at his age, age 38, I mean, do you think there's ever a point to where if he's averaging 24 a game at age 40, where we can put him in that conversation with Mike, even despite not having as many rings? Well, no, not for me, because it's not about statistical points, you know. I, and I and I yeah. and I respect the fact that he surpassed Kareem. I think that's wonderful. I mean, I think he's going to hold that title for a long time. Only guy that might be able to catch him, I think, right now is is Durant. But Durant, he doesn't stay as healthy as as LeBron did, and I don't know if he's got as many playoff uh, wins in him either. Uh, so he's going to hold that title for a long time. If not, shit, it'll be probably long before, long after I'm, uh, you know, I'm taking a dirt nap. Uh, it's one of those things that it's not a statistical thing for me though. It's, it's doing it on the greatest stage, right? Like MJ, MJ had a different gear than everybody else. That's considered a, a superstar hall of famer. He had a different gear something that separated him, uh, as a flair, a charisma, a willingness to win, never losing a title, uh, in the NBA, the NBA Finals series, that is so impressive that like, a lot of these guys have to try to chase that. And you know, even a guy like Steph Curry, who's who's won four four titles now, I, I don't think that he's ever going to get to that level of status as, as great as he shoots the basketball. Uh, and I love watching. I remember in Milwaukee playing with his father, and he'd run around as a little. Ball boy shag, shagging balls with his brother Seth. You know, all these guys, one of the greatest shooters of the in the history of the game, at least as far as making threes. Yeah. And, and last question, really appreciate your time here this, uh, tonight, Scott. You know, we talked about Giannis and you being with him while he was young. You were obviously with Jordan when he was still in his younger years. With LeBron, is there any type of memory or moment maybe – off the quarter in practice where, where you really just saw how special of a talent he was. I'll give you something off the court that maybe we didn't talk about his talent, but maybe his mentality. When I was uh, a young player with the bulls, MJ used to play in the high money game in the back, but he would always come up front and play with the young guys, myself, Stacy King, BJ Armstrong, even Will Purdue. We'd be playing blackjack up front. And he'd grab the cards and say, I'm, I'll be the, I'll be the uh, house. You guys bet whatever makes you uncomfortable. And it was a way of um, MJ spending time with the guys in the back of the plane and coming up and spending time with the guys in the front of the plane. And I would share these types of stories with LeBron as we played cards, you know, what these guys were like, not so much with their work ethic and how they, you know, did, how many jumpers they shot in the summer uh, each day or uh, working on a post-up game with me playing one-on-one after, after practice. Um, it was the mentality that he had to become a leader. And that's what LeBron really didn't have when I got there as a 19 year old. He's going to be 20 in December. 
he, he developed his leadership ability and be able to connect with his teammates. One of the things he always, uh, at least early on he did, when he'd sign an endorsement deal with somebody, I don't care if it was Beats by Dre or Ray-Ban or whatever, he'd make sure his teammates got a pair in the locker room waiting yeah. for him when he came back. And that, that started to develop a trust and leadership and then became more vocal, uh, pulling guys aside, not in an embarrassing way, pointing out, no, we didn't talk about doing the pick and roll that way. We're going to do it this way. Uh, and guys had listened and they'd buy in and they started winning there, you know, and, and that was, that was a cool thing to watch. Now they got swept by the Spurs and then he had jump ship and go down to Miami to get that championship ring. But by then he'd become a, you know, a force in the league and a leader of men. And that was cool to watch that development. Great stuff, Scott. Well, we really appreciate you stopping by the 48 Minutes podcast. Uh, be on the lookout for his book here in a couple of weeks. It's called Through the Fire, a memoir of trauma and loss, basketball and triumph. Scott, we really want to thank you for being here tonight. Thanks for tuning in uh, to all our listeners. And uh, we will be back with everybody on Monday night. And uh, really love catching up with you, Scott. We'll have to get together soon. And once again, thank you. Thank you guys very much, Rothworld B. I was it was a blast. I hope I didn't get a little too foamy at the mouth tonight. Uh, oh no! And, and uh, I hope your hope your listeners will will like the pod. Absolutely. All right. Take care, everybody.